Welcome back to the Defining Moments podcast. On today's episode, we continue our eight-part series on leadership through adversity with Senior Chief Tom George, CEO of Quarterback Impact Academy. Today, Senior Chief George talks about learning leadership in his early military career. This episode is brought to you by CMM Financial Services. At CMM, we know how hard it is to find someone who knows and cares enough to create the tax and wealth plan that you deserve. After walking alongside hundreds of clients for the past 20 years with accounting, bookkeeping, tax strategy, and financial planning, we have created a proven system to help you reach your financial goals. CMM has your complete financial team to reach your financial goals. Book a call at cmmfinancialservices.com. Senior Chief, you mentioned places such as Vietnam, Louisiana, Hawaii, Florida. I'm going to add in a few more places. Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Okinawa, Thailand, Singapore, Philippines, Hong Kong, India, Diego Garcia, Ukraine, Australia, Wake Island, Guam, Iceland, Chile, El Salvador, Caracu Islands, Spain, Italy, Greece, Scotland, Ireland, Sweden, Turkey, Syria, Yemen, Oman, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, South Korea or South Africa, East Africa. Take us to September of 1991. Wow, what a uh, before I take you there, you running through the locations that I've detached or deployed to or done missions in my career. Um, I'm I'm not gonna lie, it brings up. Uh, it, it brings up kind of a, I've never, uh, until we spoke about, about the events of my career, I've never, I've never sat down and, and, and mapped that out. My, my answer's always been, I, you know, I traveled the world and I did things. And, uh, so that was, that was super humbling to me. And, 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 uh, I'm glad you, you, you mapped those out for me. Um, yeah. Um, back to 1991, I, you know, I, uh, just finished my senior year in high school and again growing up on the islands you didn't really you didn't really leave the islands unless you were going somewhere on the west coast and it was kind of a cali arizona utah washington state oregon that's kind of where kids where kids went to you know today polynesian communities kind of play football and athletics all over the nation and and you know back then it wasn't really like that it was kind of Hawaiian families and, and Asian families were kind of guarded and, and kept kept us close. And, uh, you know, I had some opportunities to stay in Hawaii and, and, and play at the University of Hawaii. And, you know, I made some decisions to, uh, like, I, like I alluded to before, you know, I, I wasn't, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't the best football player, but I was, I commanded leadership and, and I was able to, to get followership through my football team. And it was something that coaches saw in me, you know, so I think a lot of my opportunities came from that. I, I don't think a lot of guys spoke to me and college coaches spoke to me because I was the best football player. I, I think they saw a little bit more in me. Um, 
from a teammate leader standpoint, which at that point in my life, it didn't make any sense to me. Um, because to me, if you're not the best player, all of that really, like it was, it was kind of something I was capable of naturally doing. I never, I never, you don't practice leadership or I never, I never got up in the morning and, and was like, I'm going to talk today. Like it was just kind of a feeling. Um, and I've always believed that you can enter a room and know who's, who's leading the room. I, I've always believed that I, I don't, um, and we may get into it later, but I've always believed that when the right person enters the room, you'll know, and it may not ever happen, but when, when they enter, you, you'll, you'll get a feel for who's the guy in the room that leads the room or the lady. Mm -hmm. So in 1991, um, I wanted to go on and play college football. And at the time I was pretty lost. Um, my sister had gone on to college and she was in a very serious relationship. Um, she had just gotten married in, in a very young mar marriage. And my brother-in-law was, was kind of my adult best friend at the time from a male perspective, Randy. Um, he was honestly who I looked up to, to be a young man and a father. Um, I was still at a weird place where I kind of butted heads with my, at the time, now my stepdad's in my life. Um, who's a retired uh, colonel in the army. He was a retired colonel in the army and we butted heads. And it was nothing that he did wrong, by the way, it was me. And I, I struggled with my guard from my dad passing to my trust in men. And I grew up with my mom and sister, so I didn't have a lot of trust in men, except for maybe my football coach. And it's because I saw him differently. So I had a very volatile relationship with my stepdad to the point where I just acted out as a young man. I mean, I, I ran away from home. I, I left the house. I went and lived with my sister. I just did things that young people shouldn't do. And that I try to, I try to preach to young people not to do cause it's not worth it. And, and I did those things. So I was at this weird place and I almost hated the military cause of, my vision of my dad coming home from Vietnam and then my stepdad. So to me, I, I wasn't even sure. So I was super at a place where I, I, I was confused a little bit. Um, I could go play college football. Um, I was never a high academic guy, um, which of course, if I had to do it all, all over again, it would have been different, but I was, I was never a high academic guy. Um, but I was at a place where I knew, I knew that I had an opportunity to do more. So, um, you know, I went to Arizona, um, and, uh, I spent a little bit of time in Arizona and honestly, it wasn't a lot. I was, I was selfish. I was young. Um, I thought everything was kind of about me and, uh, on a whim, I decided that I needed to do more and that I was honestly, I had nowhere to go. And at the time, the military was a place where young people, it's a little bit different than it is now. It was a place where young people that were lost, I think, went to find discipline. What's unique is I, I worked my butt off on the football field and I believed in discipline and I believed in culture and I believed in structure. I didn't live it in my life, but I lived it on the football field. So I knew I liked it. I just didn't know how to put it all together. So 
although I had a volatile relationship with my stepdad, um, I called him and my mom at this point has no idea I, I'm even thinking about the military. And he was very blunt with me and he, he called, my stepdad called me Tom Tom. Yeah, yeah, Tom Tom. And he said, Tom Tom, join the Navy. And I said, uh, I said, you know, you know, you were in the army, you know, my, my dad was in the army and Massive, weird. We have a cell phone anywhere near that's like on or something. You get that big interference. Kind of went away. You want us to go? Yeah, let's go back. Uh, you were my go back to uh, my mom had no idea I was talking to my stepdad. Okay, okay. Um, my mom had no idea I was even talking to my stepdad or thinking about the military. But when I called him, he said, uh, you know, he said Tom Tom, which is what he called me, and uh, he said join the Navy. And he kind of walked me through the Navy versus the other armed forces, right? And, you know, there's an internal rivalry with the armed forces. But what was unique to me is that I could go to sea, I could fly, or I could be on the ground. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize is the Navy's Air Force um, is larger than the Air Force's Air Force because we have a carrier strike group. And the Marines are the Department of the Navy. People don't realize that the Marines are actually fall under the Navy and that's our ground force. So at the time I was super intrigued by that. And uh, so I went to the recruiter's office and I decided to join the Navy and it was really that quick. And uh, my mom didn't even know until I went to her with a form because I was 17. And I said, I need you to sign because I can't join without you. And of course, and you know, my mom didn't understand, and mm. but she signed. Um, you know, so today it takes about six months to a year to get to boot camp in in the military. It wasn't like that back then. When you joined, you went. So you essentially signed, you did the oath, and it was it was on. Um, so I left pretty quick. Um, I remember reporting to boot camp at the end of September, and. Uh, at the time, I went to San Diego for boot camp. The Navy was very coastal. So on the West Coast, guys went to San Diego. In the Midwest, the middle of the United States, boot camp was in Chicago, Illinois. And then the East Coast uh, was Orlando, Florida. And it was so far back that Orlando, Florida was the only boot camp that allowed women. So Illinois and, and San Diego were just men yeah. mm -hmm. because the force was so small when it came to women. So I remember um, arriving in San Diego at the airport and a van picking me up and we had to meet at a certain location. It's a funny story. There's 18 of us that got off my airplane um, that get in this van. So we get in this van and I'm not a talker. I've never really been a talker um, unless there's trust. So I get in the van with 18 other guys and of course 16 of them are tough guys, right? Right off the bat, right? You can pick out the tough guys, right? And you can count out of those 16 that they're probably all gonna fail because they they really don't realize what they're getting into. And being tough in high school in the military is not the same. Although I was kind of an arrogant guy, I wasn't stupid, right? And I, I understood. So we get to boot camp, we pull into San Diego and immediately people are screaming at us, right? Get out of your truck, get out of the van. Um, it's very, it, you know, that generation, you know, it's, it's 
I hate to be the old guy that says that, but it's, it's not the same today, right? There's a, it's a pretty restricted, but you know, get down, do push-ups, yelling at us, get in line, you know, all the, all the typical stuff that makes no sense, right? It's just direction. And the military is all about following direction and pay attention and, and, and paying attention to detail, right? So through the chaos, they just want to see if you can function through the chaos. The chaos really means nothing, but can you function through the chaos? Mm. And I, I, I was kind of mentally strong, so I got that. And it wasn't a big deal to me. Um, it's kind of like if I ask you to do 25 push-ups, you can knock them out. If I ask you to do 25 push-ups while I'm yelling in your ear, it's a problem because you're, you're mentally drained by somebody yelling at you, so you can't do the push-ups. And I realized that it was a mental game. So it wasn't, boot camp was difficult for, for people, but honestly, it wasn't difficult for me because I grew up in a culture that noise was not a big deal to me. And I kind of tuned it out and just kind of went to work. So I was able to grow in boot camp into a leadership role. And what they do is, you know, each company's got 60 to 70 guys in it. And they, they by like week two, they build this chain of command structure in this company so that, um, so that you act as a cohesive unit in boot camp. So I was, I was put in, a, in, in that leadership role and I started at like tier four and then by a month into boot camp, like I was in charge of my company. And I found that I was more like my stepdad than I thought. Hmm. Um, and, I, and I started to see that and I became, I became almost consumed with the military and the structure of the military and how much I actually liked it more than I thought. Um, and, and I, I kind of became a part of the, the, the game and the discipline and the routine of pay, paying attention to detail and doing things right and understanding our, my goals in the Navy. Um, but I was still selfish driven. I was still a, what about me guy? And I could hear it. And it was always, um, they're failing, but I'm still the best. And and I, I couldn't figure that out. Like, why are you yelling at me? I'm the best. They're the ones that are failing. And that was hard for me to understand. And uh, so I get through boot camp and, and I, you know, I graduate as like the honor guy in boot camp, which is cool. Um, and I leave boot camp and in a, in a very weird turn of events, I go to the USS Kitty Hawk which is an aircraft carrier out of San Diego. Um, and again, a weird turn of events. I get to the USS Kitty Hawk and in the, in the, in the job I'm taking in aviation, there's, there's too many guys, right? So they're like, hey, we're gonna deploy to Japan, but in the next three to four months, somebody's gonna have to leave the shop. There's too many, right? Um, for whatever reason, the Navy deployed too many guys to the Kitty Hawk. And so they asked for volunteers to leave the Kitty Hawk, which is a ship aircraft carrier, but you had to go overseas for three years. So it was, it was all these married families had got houses in San Diego and they were on the ship, but single guys like myself were like, man, I, I can go overseas for three years. I'll give it a shot. So. I go to a bunch of schools and they send me to Spain. Okay. Uh, 
I know, terrible, isn't it? Right. <laughs> so I go to Spain and I'm I'm there for three years. So in my totality of time, there's three years. Um, so I'm in Spain. I'm kind of I'm working on airplanes, and uh, um, I, I, you know I'm kind of I'm almost a wrench turner, like a mechanic. Uh, aviation machinist made and and really all we did was we worked on airplanes and and I'd be it'd be two o'clock in the morning and I'd be covered in grease and miserable and working on airplanes in the in the hangar no joke right so I remember I'm working on this airplane and it's two o'clock in the morning and the crew from the airplane comes to the airplane to get their belongings off it and they had just been at the bar like out in town it's in Spain right so these guys come in in their pretty flight suits, right? And they're pretty gold wings. And, and uh, I'm pissed off. I'm fixing their airplane. They just went out, had dinner, and went, had drinks. And, uh, and of course, they don't acknowledge that I've been busting my ass on their airplane all, all day. And uh, they do their thing and they leave. And I looked at my buddy and I said, I want to be them. <laughs> so... Um, so like for the next week, I make it like my goal in life to fill out this paperwork to become a flyer. Um, and then they run me through this education system and platform and what do you have to do to become a flyer? And, and, and so they're like, hey, you have to spend another year in Spain to fulfill all these education requirements to become a flyer. So fast forward, um, um, I, I spend another year in Spain. Uh, so now I'm going on four years in Spain. And I'm traveling all over the Middle East and, and, and doing this aircraft maintenance type of stuff. And I get approved. Um, and I get approved to go to air crew school to be a flyer, to fly planes. And uh, I'm like, you know, at the time, I'm like, yeah, let's, let's do this, right? This is, this is, what, this is what it's about. Um, and uh, so I go to Pensacola, Florida to air crew training operator school. Um, so I'm in Pensacola, Florida, and air crew training operate uh, air crew air crew school operator school is it's 98% physical. Um, everything you learn mentally is safety. It's airplane safety. It's not even mission stuff. It's safety. Like if the plane crashes, how do you survive? How do you deploy rafts if it crashes? How do you um, if there's an emergency in the air? How do you how do you how do you get the oxygen on and how do you regulate oxygen and how do you like it all it is is safety and physical testing like every day is an obstacle course it's a it's a seven mile run it's a it's a one mile swim and it's not a one mile swim like me and you do it's a one mile swim in your boots and flight suit right wow. you don't do anything like in a swimsuit right it's in your stuff right because yeah. it's real yeah um, and then you go through survival training where they put you in a helicopter in a pool and flip you upside down and blindfold you and all the things you see it's all right and uh, i was good at that man i was a water junkie growing up in hawaii so for me like I, I was rolling i was rolling but while i was rolling people in my class were failing and it didn't matter to me because i was rolling um, and it was a very selfish time in my career when it's kind of like the athlete going to play college football. He only really cares about his success in today's world. Mm. Um, and I was very success selfless, or excuse me, selfishly driven, right? It didn't matter that people were failing my class. That's their problem. I'm rolling. Um, and my instructors took note of that. 
Um, and, and they used to tell me that like, you're, you're great, but you don't realize how great you can be yet. And you need to figure it out. But I, I, I okay, whatever. Right. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it was, it was, it was almost disrespectful how, how I was, I, I was almost like, you're my instructor, but I'm so good. You need me. Um, so I dominated air crew school. So now I'm in air, air crew school, about to go be an air crew and fly planes. Right. And I'm watching TV. No joke. I know it's, it's ridiculous. Right. I'm watching TV and a guy jumps out of a helicopter and saves, pulls somebody out of the ocean. Right. So I'm like, that's what I want to do. Right. Now understand, this is not normal in the Navy. You just don't get to watch a movie and be like, I want to do that. Right. So I said, that's what I want to do. Um, so I'm in school and they're like, Hey, we have, we have seats available for search and rescue SAR school and it's on Pensacola, but we have to do an ord mod. If you put, you know, if you put in a request an ord mod is a military order modification. Right. And, uh, so I said, I want to see it to SAR school. And, uh, so I went to SAR school. Okay. So I get into SAR school and take everything I did in air crew school and multiply it by 20 from a physical water standpoint. Um, I think when I got there, they had just, somebody just died like either the, the couple years prior in SAR school or, or a couple months prior, but it was, they were kind of, they had just reeled that in and they were kind of figuring things out in their training. Cause it was so, it was underwater driven and rigorous. And they were like, when you got to see it, you know, they're every day, somebody's getting pulled out of water. Right. And there's a safety, safety uh, diver. So I go to SAR school and I'm doing well. I'm really doing well. I was always good in the water though. Like the water was my thing. Um, although I loved aviation, the water was my thing. So I, I go to SAR school and I'm, I'm, I'm doing really good in SAR school, but there are activities where I have to utilize a teammate and I couldn't do it because my expectations were higher than his in my eyes. Um, and it really was just me being selfish because they would in, and I didn't know this till the end, but they would, they would put me with candidates in my class that were, that were struggling because they wanted to see me lead instead of me actually like almost help him fail. Cause I'm the man. Right. Um, you know, so I, I go through this and it's super, it, it's really challenging for me. Um, and, and cause I didn't understand it. And, and I really felt that if I was the man and I was succeeding that, that that's what was important. Um, so anyway, so I get through SAR school and, and, uh, you know, in a weird chain of events, like my entire career, I get another order modification and I end up back at aviation and airplanes, even though I wanted to jump out of helicopters. And it was because my mom got sick and I went on emergency leave, just some crazy things happened. So, so I end up in Washington state. Um, and so this is about probably the, the five year point of my career. Um, I end up in Washington state and I'm a flyer. Um, 
And I, I, I get there and again, I wouldn't call it hazing because hazing's frowned upon, but, but I, first of all, I, I, I think there's a place for hazing, right? Of course, I know people, oh my God, hazing is so, okay. Like what, what I mean about it was, it was a rite of passage. There were things you had to do as a rite of passage, right? Um, you just didn't show up and you were the guy. You went through like an 18 month syllabus of training and you went through this rite of passage and there were, there were guys, you know, you're in the Navy five years. These guys are in the Navy 15 and 16 and 17 and they're, they're telling you what to do and you're kind of the, you take out the trash and you mop the floors, then you study and then you, then you complain because you don't have time to study because you're mopping the floors and you're doing Navy stuff and, you know, so, but that's how the Navy function, right? You don't hire people to mop floors, right? You use people, right? So, so that was very challenging for me. And through that process, I am very successful, but I'm still not getting it. And I'm still not realizing that it's, it's not just about me and my leaders are continuing to push me. And I was blessed. I had a commanding officer named Bernie Ryan. He was my commanding officer in my squadron. And typically commanding officers don't associate with E3s or E4s. They really don't. But we get the, we fly together. So we fly together on the plane. But after that, he's the commanding officer. Like you don't, you don't associate, right? He's a, he's a high ranking commander. He's, he's the guy. When he walks in the room, you, you say attention on deck and you pop tall. So you, you don't do that, right? And, but I gained a lot of respect because when I was an operator in the plane, they were like, Petty Officer George is really good, right? So when you get that from your commanding officer, it kind of means something. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of guys that, um, a, lot of, a lot of instructors, Brett Winters and Mike Sweem and Mike Knight and all these guys that, that would push me and push me and push me to the point of, of emotional, just it would drive me crazy. And then my commanding officer would lean on me and, um, you know, so I, I wanted to be better through that process. And I, I, I got a little bit of leadership. Um, and, and although I thought I was succeeding, I really wasn't because I was failing the team. And, and t in today's words, it would be the establishment of culture. So the commanding officer was trying to establish culture within the squadron. And he wanted his operators to also um, believe in his mission statement and, and have the same culture. But if one of your best operators wouldn't fall in line, there's a problem with culture and I wouldn't fall in line. So there was always a little bit of an issue with culture. And uh, I, I never really got it, to be honest with you. And I, I kind of got by by being really good at my job. And honestly, in my eyes, the Navy needed me. So although I didn't fall in line, it didn't matter because the Navy needed me because I was a good operator. Um, so, you know, fast forward a little bit. Uh, I, I continue to progress in my career. So I get to a point in my career where not only am I uh, an instructor, um, I'm a NATOPS guy, um, which is one of the, the, it's kind of the tip of the spear safety instructor. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the best young operators and I run across two guys um, and they're, 
they're older than me. Um, and one is uh, Chief uh, Flip Padilla, and the other one is Senior Chief Sidney Smith. And I cross I, I cross paths with these guys at, at VP30 in Jacksonville, Florida. So we're all there together. And Senior Chief Sidney Smith was a 6'3", 6'4", African-American guy, probably 230 pounds. Um, he was a he was the definition of a leader of men. Um, he didn't talk a lot, but when he did, people listened. Um, he was always a culture team guy. Um, he didn't get rattled when there was adversity. You wouldn't have known, but he was a great operator, but he didn't really lean on that. Like his, his mantra wasn't really being the best operator. It was taking care of people and the troops and making sure they were good. And, uh, and then Flip was kind of, Flip Padilla, Chief Padilla was kind of his right-hand man. So, so those two chiefs, and, and Sydney made senior chief eventually, but those two guys kind of saw something in me. Um, so we deployed to Italy together. And I am at a point in my military career where I'm a senior, I'm a first class petty officer, which means um, I don't show up to the meetings with the president and the CEO. I'm upper management. Those guys are above me, but they need me because all these guys below them work for me, right? So I am now that guy for them, okay? Well, they belong to this culture in the Navy called the Chief's Mess. It's kind of a rite of passage. It's really the only service that has it. And I'm not trying to offend another service, but when you go from petty officer first class to chief, you go through like six to 10 weeks and it's changed of leadership training and you go through uh, physical training and this is in the middle of the career. So, and they mold you into this chief and you're called a chief and your uniform changes and, and it's just right, you become a chief, right? So the goal as a first class is to be a chief. And there's only a couple that are selected every year. The problem is there's a group of 30 or 40 chiefs in the totality of a command structure. And your chiefs will fight for you when they talk to them. So as they're fighting for me, because I'm the man, or I think I'm the man, the feedback is always, um, he's selfish. He's selfish. You guys need him, I get it, but he's selfish. And uh, I remember sitting in my office in Siganella, Italy, and I just got done from a flight that I was, in my eyes, I dominated. And uh, I walk into the office and me and Sydney, our, our desk are across from each other. And so I've been flying all day and I walk in and I'm like, hey, I spent like, eight hours on that email last night, did you get it? And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, but I deleted it. And uh, I'm pissed. Now, now he's, a, he's a senior chief now, right? And uh, I'm like, what do you mean you deleted it? And I just, so I, when, I went, when I say I went flying, like I've been in the air like 10 hours, plus pre-flight, plus all this, so it's 15 hours, I'm exhausted. And he goes, I deleted it, petty officer. And I said, nah. And I'm like, so I'm like, now I'm getting pretty aggressive. And he goes, hold on. And he goes, everybody get out of the office. And he closes the door. And he 
he gets about an inch from my face and he goes, you sent me a two page email and you typed the words I and me over 62 times. So you're telling me nobody else does anything in this place, but you, and you spent hours typing up an email to tell me about you instead of the 58 young people that work for you. He goes, you're selfish. Get the fuck out of my office. True story. So I don't know if you got to edit that, but let's roll with it. So it's ultimately your fault. Yeah. So I paused for a second and in true, you know, baby fashion, I, I turn, I leave. Um, I go back to my, my room, which is a barracks room, right? We're on a base in Italy. Of course, I call my boy, another, you know, down to the room. I mean, I can't believe he's in, you know, and we called him Smitty when we weren't professional around Smitty. Yeah. And, and my buddy paused and I'm like, you don't have my back. What, what do you mean? Like, you gonna say something? He's like, maybe he's right. So I'm, I'm hot right now. Right. So, so now, now I'm kind of like, now Flip and Smitty are, are trying to mentor to me so that I can become a chief and a senior chief and, and change the culture and, and, and mold young men and women. And I still don't get it. Um, so I come in the next morning and he's sitting there and uh, he looks at me, he goes, he goes, Hey, let's go for a walk. And I'm like, okay. And, and so I'm already acting like a baby, right? I'm like, I'm in full baby fashion. Like, Oh, I, mean, I don't want to walk. Right. So we go for a walk, we grab coffee, we go downstairs and there's a young lady. She's a third class. She's 19 years old and she's crying. And he, we go down and he's like, Peter Sir George, meet Peter Officer Lacosta. And, and, and he looked at me, he goes, Peter Sir Lacosta's mom died yesterday, but you were too busy praising yourself. So you didn't know that. And I paused and I looked at her and I, I told her I was sorry. And that, what can we do? Can, you know, at the, when, when, when a, when you lose a loved one on deployment, you have to go through the American Red Cross. So I'm immediately in, um, so we walk out and he goes, see, that's your problem. We have people in this squadron with human problems, but you two worried about your ego. And, uh, like I, it was, it was almost, I'm walking through the hangar and I'm like, I was honestly so, I felt so little, not that he embarrassed me, but that he was right. And I had spent 12 years in my Navy career and I had no clue, no clue what was going on in the lives of my people that worked for me. And I thought that because I held this rank of petty officer first class and that I was this high level manager that, that they were supposed to figure it out. And what I didn't realize is I never knew my people. They worked hard for me because of my rank, but not because they followed me. And it honestly kind of came full circle for me. And I'm not saying I turned around, but you know, I, I kind of walked out to the hangar that overlooks Italy and I, I kind of stood there and I was like, man, you know, like that hit me, it hit me really hard. And, uh, 
you know, so I, I kind of tried to grow up and I tried to, I didn't really grow up, but I kind of tried to. And I, I kind of, I went through a, a couple years where I was finding myself as a leader and I didn't make chief yet. So I kind of felt this uh, obligation that I'm better than that. I need to make chief, but I need them to trust me and, and I need my young people to trust me. And I was almost there, but I wasn't. Um, so in, in this next two years, just coincidentally, and, and this rarely happens, the three of us end up at another location together. And they were very connected. So anytime they moved to a different squadron or crew as operators, they would, when you're high ranking in the military, you can kind of bring people with you when you build your team. So I knew they kind of brought me with them because I knew they were frustrated in me, but they saw things in me. Um, and, to, and, and, and today, to this day, me and, me and Flip Padilla, Chief Padilla, who retired, are, have still have these leadership conversations. So we're in, we're in the next squadron and we're instructors. And uh, I remember uh, being at home one afternoon and Flip calls me um, and we just got done doing a string of flights and missions and Thank you for tuning into Defining Moments podcast. We hope you enjoyed episode three of Leadership Through Adversity. Next week in part four, we get the moment it all finally clicked for Senior Chief George. For more Defining Moments podcast content, visit our webpage, www.undefeated.show. Follow us at Def Moments Pod on Twitter and at Defining Moments Podcast on Instagram.